The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark seven fourteen through 30 And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this entire year, we've been making our way verse by verse through the book of Mark. We're studying Mark because it's one of the best places to go to meet the real Jesus. And by the way, the balcony is just getting more and more filled up each week. It's pretty cool up there. Um, So I do recognize you guys up there, you know. And it's, it's one of the, anyways, the book of Mark is one of the best places to go to meet the real Jesus. Um, And it's interesting that as our society gets more and more and more secularized, um, people are still just as interested in Jesus as they have ever been before. Um, You see um, articles uh, in the New York Times. You still see specials on CNN. We even have a special going on right now in in the main networks, um, AD, that the interest in Jesus is still just as high as it ever has been. Why is that? Why, as we continue, and, and this is actually kind of a phenomenon. Many, 30, 40 years ago, people thought as we continue, our society continues to sec- be secularized, uh, we won't need religion anymore, and people become less and less and less religious. And it's actually been the exact opposite. Why is that? Why, as we become more, a more secular nation, um, does the interest of Jesus still stay constant? Well, I think today, our text is going to give us a clue. Um, if, if you were with us last week, this is really part two of a two-part message that we started last week. Um, and last week we learned that it isn't necessarily our badness that keeps us away from Jesus, but actually our own perceived goodness. That the religious person believes that all their good deeds can make them acceptable to God or keep them in a relationship with God. The religious work on the framework that I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by Him, and He will make my life better. Okay, listen to that. The religious framework is this. If I obey God, God will make my life better. Okay? It's, I do this for Him, He does that for me. But Jesus turned this religious mindset inside out last week by saying that even the deeply religious... Even people who try with all their might to be good, moral, upstanding people, even the best of the best have a problem. Jesus said it like this. We read it again today. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now that is a scathing rebuke, right? 
And it's just so happened that I've had personal experience with that this week. I'm sure you have too if you're aware of it. This is my, uh, well, actually in a couple days is my birthday. And my wife had kind of surprised me. She said, family's coming over on Saturday. You're going to have a little family birthday thing. And it was, there's all, it was shrouded in weirdness all week, okay? I was like, is it at our house or my mom's house? Well, you, you, and it was like, I'm like what, what is going on? I hear my, see my mom whispering to her and stuff. I'm like something weird's going on. Well, in my mind, okay, I've been whispering to people for several weeks that there's this thing that you could put on your watch or on your wrist that, uh, you know, is made by a, a company called Apple, uh, per chance, that, I, you know, that, hey, just hinting, just hinting, you know, for a birthday. So I'm thinking, yes, They're, they did it, they got it, I'm getting an Apple watch. And she, she, comes, she comes down on Saturday, and she gives me a car, and she's like, open it up. And she's all happy and excited. Remember, out of the heart comes evil. Okay. Uh, I open it up, and it's a, it's a, it's a gift certificate for a, a pontoon on the river. Uh, we're going to spend a couple hours with the family, and we're going to go out on the river. And I'm reading it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> now I know exactly what's going on, okay? I, I'm a dad now, so dads, they don't get birthday presents anymore. They get family gifts, okay? I get it. I got a vacuum for Christmas, okay? I get it. That happens, but I'm still selfish in my heart. I still think, no, my birthday should be about me. It should be an Apple Watch that nobody else gets to enjoy. Justin does. It's Justin's day. Okay, so out of the heart, come the, I'm selfish, I'm greedy, I don't want it, and I had, it was fun, I had a good time on the river with the family, but it was supposed to be my birthday, right, this is out of my heart. Now, now that's a funny one, but on the, on the flip side, this morning, Amanda, that's my wife up here singing, and she sings, and, and sometimes on Sunday mornings for us is chaos, because we've got four little kids, she needs to get here early to practice, I gotta, I'm usually nailing down some details on my sermon, so she came here this morning, and I'm at home, and I'm trying to get my sermon put together, and my girls are fighting because Amanda laid out an outfit that had pants involved, okay? And my, my girls only want to wear dresses. That's it. Everything else is ugly to them, right? And they're, Dad, I don't want to wear this. I hate it. It's ugly. She always makes me wear this. And I'm trying to type up my sermon, right? <laughs> right? And I turn around, and I say, I said, get back upstairs right now and obey. And I, I just, and then immediately I'm like, Ugh. right? What is this? Out of the heart. I'm preparing a sermon to talk about the wickedness of the human heart, and I yell at my daughter before church. <laughs> I didn't need an illustration that bad, okay? I swear. Now, what's, what happened last week? Jesus gave this scathing rebuke to people who think they can clean up their act by changing what's on the outside. For those of us who think we can act our way into good, God's good graces, you know what he did last week? He called the religious hypocrites. And back then, it had a very, hypocrite had a very specific word. That was a word that was borrowed from the theater. It describes an actor who wears a mask and plays a part on stage. So Jesus said that the religious, they are actors who play a part in a drama and all the while they're playing their roles thinking that God doesn't really know the darkness and the sensuality and the greed that is in their hearts, okay? So for me, your pastor, I'm more worried about writing my sermon than I, and, and saying something clear and cogent to you than I am about loving my daughters or even disciplining them in the morning like I should have like 10 times before they got on my last nerve, Right? That there's this wickedness in the human heart that we, we and, and we don't know what to do with that, and but we all we are really concerned with what's going on on the outside most of the time. And Jesus says that that's not that's backwards. He turns religion inside out. He says you can't act your way into God's kingdom. You can't perform your way into a relationship with Jesus. And for some of you, you go, yeah, yeah, I get that. Check it off. I'm saved by grace. But the same is true of your sanctification. The same is true as how you grow in the Christian faith. You can't grow in the Christian faith, all right, outside in. You can't grow in the Christian faith, faith by performance and acting your way into it. Everything comes through grace. 
your relationship with Jesus, the beginning, the middle, the end is all through grace, not through your own work, you're through, through your own effort. And what we saw last week is that begins with seeing, being made aware through the, by the power of the Holy Spirit of your own sinfulness. And by that, I don't mean the things that you do. Last week we saw, and this week we saw it again, that being a sinner isn't just the things that we do, but it's actually who we are. It's our nature. You don't just do sinful actions, but you're a sinner in your heart. So what, what then? Once you find that out, once you come to this realization, you realize that even our repentance, even our confession of sin has got elements of sin in it. So we can't even confess our sin right. So what do we do? We cry out for grace, that we can be saved by nothing but the perfect grace of God. And we ask God for a new heart, and God takes out this heart of stone, and he gives us this new heart of flesh. But what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like when you put flesh on it in the day in, day out of life? Or when the grace impacts a human, what does that actually look like? Well, it looks a little bit different for everyone, but there's some, a few things that are pretty universal. And this morning, we get to see this principle played out for us in real life. Now, who gets the gospel? The gospel is the good news. Who gets the good news that their sins can be forgiven and they can have new hearts and these new hearts would actually desire God and would love God and would love other people? Who gets that? Who does that happen to? Well, we're going to see it this morning and I think we're going to be shocked by it. Surprisingly, the outsider is the one who gets it first. See, this is the good news that our society needs to hear more and more and more. That as we get further and further secular, we need to see this picture of what we're going to see of the grace of God, that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. And today, we're going to see that played out for us front and center. Okay? So if you've got your Bibles, we use the ESV Bible because it's, an, it's a word-for-word translation. It's got some of the world's best scholars on it right now. So um, open up to Mark chapter 7. And we are starting at verse 24. We're not going to cover what we already talked about last week. I just wanted to, uh, I'll I'll tell you why I included that. But let's go. Let's start with 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, now what's going on here? This is the first and only time that Jesus leaves the borders of Israel during his, his roughly three years of public ministry. Okay, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was sent on a mission to preach the gospel to the Jews. Jesus' ministry was monocultural, okay? It was sent to, he was sent to one people group. It wasn't until Jesus' resurrection that he told his disciples to take this message to the ends of the world. Why? Because Jesus was given a very specific mission from God. And that mission was to the people of God. It was to Israel. But today we see, some, we see Jesus do something special. We see him leave Israel's borders and enter into this place called Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. And the Jewish rabbis said that Tyre and Sidon were both committed to radical paganism and idolatry. The people of these regions were outsiders. They, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with Jesus. They're only 20 or 30 miles away. But they worshipped other gods. They worshipped many different gods. They were polytheistic. So it's important for us to see the relevance of what Jesus is doing here uh, for us today. That Jesus is entering into a very, I'm going to say, secularized culture. And when I say secularized, don't think Absence of God. Think many gods. Think think we're gods, right? Think anything kind of goes, right? So Jesus is stepping outside of the church walls, in a sense. He's stepping outside of the religious, outside of the, the Jewish, and outside of Israel. And he's stepping into this region that the church of his time would have fought It was unfit for a man of God to go to. If you go to Tyre and Sidon, you'll be unclean. Don't go out there. But it seems that Jesus, well, let's just keep reading. Let's just keep reading and see what's going on here. Verse 24, he went to Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Now, what's going on? Jesus has been 
uber popular, right? Everywhere he goes in Israel, um, he is just overrun with people, overrun with ministry opportunity. He's tired. He's exhausted. Jesus isn't into the crowds, okay? He doesn't operate on the idea that the bigger the crowd, the more successful you are. Jesus hides from him often. He runs and needs to rest. And now it seems like he's going for a little R&R, that he's trying to get out of Israel. He's going to lock himself into a room, and he just wants some time alone, okay? That's what it looks like is going on. But Yet he could not be hidden, right? So Jesus, he tries to get out out of town, but he just can't. He's just too popular. Even 30 miles away in a pagan culture, in a culture that's outside of Israel, um, even these guys have heard of him. and, And now we're about to see something kind of extraordinary take place. Look at verse 25. But immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, this woman, from my uh, point of view, has got at least five strikes against her, okay? If you want to get a hearing with a Jewish rabbi, if you want to get a hearing with the Son of God, all right, um, this girl has got five strikes against her automatically, right? If you're going to try to get into a meeting with Jesus, this girl's got five strikes against her. Number one, um, she's a woman. Now we know patriarchal society, right? Most women undereducated or uneducated, um, that, that, uh, that, that's just a strike against her back in this day and age, right? She's a woman, okay? That She's unnamed in this parable. So she's an unnamed woman in this parable. Secondly, she's a Gentile. What does that mean? She's not a Jew. She's not an insider. She's not one of God's chosen people. So she's ritually unclean, okay? So for her to meet with a, with a rabbi would make him unclean. So that's, gonna, that's, a, that's something against her. Now, third, she's a Syrophoenician. Now, Syro... From Syria and Phoenicia, those two, play, they're radically pagan, all right? So they're out, think outsiders, think the most far um, liberal people you could possibly imagine. Just think, just think of that, right? People that would not be seen or would not be admitted into, a, you would think, into a relationship with a very conservative Jew, all right? So she's got that strike against her. Fourth, she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit, right? Unclean spirit. Think about this. Like, do you want a lady with an unclean spirit in to meet with this, with this teacher, right? That's just, that's just not, hey, I need to meet with you. I have a demon-possessed daughter, right? Ooh, not on the top of my list, I think, right? I don't know if I'm qualified to do this, okay? So she's got this against her. And then lastly, and this is just maybe in our day and age, but she's just over, overtly expressive, Let's just say it like that, okay? She's very dramatic, all right? She's a very dramatic woman. She sees Jesus, and she doesn't go, excuse me, sir, um, do you have a 415 available? Right? She, she doesn't say, um, ex- excuse me, sir, I, 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 next week, 2 o'clock, possibly, right? What does she do? Now, think about this, right? You're walking down, you're at the farmer's market, you're walking through the farmer's market, and this woman, all right, this, this complete outsider, let's just think, whatever the most outsider person is in your mind, throws themselves down at your feet, right? Throws himself down at your feet, begs you, and it's a, pre- it's a present imperative um, in the original language, which means she's begging and she's begging and she's begging and she's begging. It's not just like, oh, oh, please, would you heal my daughter? It's begging, okay? You got this overtly expressive woman, throws herself at his feet, which is very kind of... Uh, shameful in that day and age, throws himself out of feet and is begging, 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 right? Now, this woman has got a lot of things against her, right? And rightly so. The apostles, you know, they get freaked out by it, all right? Now, but what, what's about to happen is pretty interesting because, listen, this woman who has really everything against her, this unnamed woman, an outsider to the covenant and promises of Israel, a woman who worships other gods, unashamedly worships other gods, 
approaches Jesus and falls at his feet and begs him for help, how does Jesus respond? With a parable, not surprisingly. Jesus has been telling all kinds of parables. It was his favorite way to teach. But here's the deal. If you've been with us through the study of Mark, you realize no one understands the parables, okay? He tells the story, everybody's like, yeah! Jesus, what did that mean? And this week, we, we read it again, but last week we saw very specifically when he tells the parable about the wickedness of our heart, the apostles bring him to the side and go, huh? What? And he goes, are you really that dull? Are you still so dull? He says this to the insiders, okay? So the thing about the parables, are they're very deep. Well, they're very simple, but they're very deep at the same time. And hardly anybody understands what's going on, right? But, G, but this, in this situation right here, right, we've seen no one gets the parables right away. But here is the irony of the kingdom, This is the irony of the kingdom of God. The apostles don't get it. The religious elite don't get it. But this pagan Gentile woman becomes the first person in Mark to understand one of Jesus' parables on the spot. The first woman, the first person in Mark. She gets it. She understands what he's getting at. And here's the thing, and I love it. Jesus kind of tells her a story, a parable, and she answers him as if she's a character in the parable. She answers him kind of from inside the parable. That's how she responds to him. She sees herself in the parable and responds as if she's in it. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 27. And Jesus said to her, so this is the parable, let the children be fed first. So think about this, woman at his feet, begging, heal my daughter, heal my daughter, heal my daughter. He says this, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, hmm, let me explain this just a little bit. Who are the children? Who are the dogs? Well, she's a dog. Hmm, okay told you this is probably the most offensive thing Jesus ever said. Uh, But let me just explain it a little bit. Who are the children? Jesus is talking about the priority of the people of Israel. That God revealed himself to a specific people group. God chose Abraham and made a promise to him and his descendants. He said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He did not choose any other nation on the earth. Right? He chose Israel. And he, said, oh, he says over and over in the Old Testament, Israel, you are my children, okay? So when he says it's not right to give the children's bread, he, the children's bread is Israel. He's sent first to the people of Israel. When Jesus came, he came as a Jew to the Jews first, okay? This is what he says, this is what he means when he says let the children be fed first, excuse me. The Jewish people, Israel, had a front row seat, a priority position to know Jesus, But, this is what he says, but everyone knows, right, if the kids won't eat it, right, or if it falls on the floor, it becomes fair game for anyone else in the house, even the dogs. But now, listen, we can't get around what Jesus is doing. Jesus just called a woman a dog. Same Jesus who says, you know, a bruised reed he will not break smoldering wick he will not put out. He just called a woman a dog. Now, that's offensive. We're going to talk about it, but let me soften it just a little bit. Jesus chose a very specific word for dog here in the Greek. It's kynarion, okay? Kynarion. It's not the normal word in that day and age. Majority of animals, the majority of dogs, they were street dogs. They ate the garbage. They would eat Dead animals on the side of the road, they were nasty, they were fearsome, they were wild, right? Jesus does not choose that, that word, that's the, t- the typical word for street dog, he doesn't choose that word. He uses this kinarion, which means little dog, it means house dog, it means puppy, okay? And it's important for us to see what Jesus is trying to get across. 
if we're going to really understand what he, was, what he was trying to say here, right? So Jesus says, this is what he says to her. Lady, you are an outsider. You aren't Jewish. I didn't come for you first. I came to the Jews for the Jews, and it's not right for me to give you a priority position at the table, right? Now, there's no getting around the fact that this is probably the most offensive thing Jesus ever said. How would you respond to this? Jesus, I have a need. Jesus, my family's falling apart. Jesus, my daughter is sick. Jesus, you come running to him. And by the way, anyone who's not Jewish in here, this is your position, okay? You don't have a priority position at the table. You're not Jewish. And Jesus says, listen up, dog. Right? Jesus says, and that not in a, this is a pejorative sense, obviously, not in a, our, our cultural sense. That's just cool, right? But Jesus says, hey, you are an outsider. You are offensive. You are a sinner. You are a dog. How would you respond to that? How dare you? Who do you think you are talking to me like that? For most of us, our inner lawyer would rise up. Dog? I'm no dog. You must be confused. You must have got me confused with somebody else. You don't even know me. I'm a good person. Right? Is that how you would respond? I have a good job. I pay my taxes. Right? I'm educated. I'm refined. I'm sophisticated. How dare you call me unclean? Refer to me like a little house dog? Who do you think you are? Is this how you'd respond? Now, I call this our inner lawyer. Because basically, it's our heart trying to convince us and convince others that we aren't really worthy of the label that was just placed upon us. We want to avoid being convicted as a dog. I don't want to be seen with the dogs. I don't want to be called the dog. I'm not a dog. So what we do is if someone says something to us that might make us seem doggish, okay, what do we do? We try to convince ourselves that it's not really true about us. We argue with ourselves first, trying to convince ourselves that we aren't really as bad as we think, we're not as really, really as bad as they say we are, that they must be confused with some other dog, right? Like, that's not me. You don't know my heart. And if someone were to say to us, I think you're greedy, for example. Now, I told my missional community a few weeks back, in 15 years of ministry, I've never once had a person confess greed to me. I've had them confess affairs. I've had them confess all kind of immorality. I've had them confess stealing. I've had them confess, I've had them confess almost everything. But nobody ever confesses greed. Right? Why? You, would you, if you say, I think you're greedy, immediately our inner lawyer would stand up and start building our defense on why that is not the case and you are absolutely mistaken. And we would spend the rest of the day, possibly the rest of the week, trying to convince ourselves, I can't believe they said that. They don't know me. Who do they think they are? Greedy? Me? Don't they know how much I give to the poor? Don't they know how much I give to the church? Don't, know, don't they know how generous I am? We would be building this case inside of us why that is absolutely not the case. I'm not the dog you think I am. Now, why do we do this? I think we all do it. My daughter. We do donuts with dad every Saturday. And we tell him, you can eat donuts on Saturday and then the leftovers you can have on Sunday, right? Well, there's only a few leftovers, right? There's only a few, three, three donuts or something maybe. So really, it's first come, first serve. Whoever wakes up early gets their choice, right? So, you know, Piper, 
realized, she's a smart girl, she's almost three, but she's real smart. She realized, hey, if I wake up in the middle of the night, <laughs> donuts are fair game, right? And she came downstairs and she ate a donut all by herself, to, not even three years old, she ate a donut, she, that was pretty good, went back, laid in bed, everybody got off the next morning and where, what happened to the donuts? And, you know, her inner, her inner lawyer, I, it was morning, I did it in the middle of the night. Fair game, right? I'm like, the logic is clear. She's good, right? Now, why, why do we, we and my wife and I were talking about just raising our, our kids. Like, Javin is in the stage now where he's very argumentative, and the thing that is so difficult about being argumentative is half the time he's right. So we're arguing, we're arguing, and then we're like, crap, he's right. What do we do here? He's got this inner lawyer that stands up right? And sometimes he's right. And what do we do? Now, why? Why does he have this inner lawyer? Why do we all have this argumentative nature? And I think it's this. We want to live in a meritocracy. We want to live in a meritocracy. Now, what is a meritocracy? A meritocracy is a kingdom or a nation, whatever. It's a kingdom that operates on ability or merit, Okay? It's a kingdom that operates on merit or ability. So why were you the starting quarterback? Because you were better than everyone else, clearly. Why did you get the scholarship? Because you were better than those who didn't. Why did you get accepted to the school? Because you were smarter than those who did not. Why did you get the job when others didn't? Because you are more qualified. You earned it. Why have your kids turned out so well? Clearly, it's because you were a better parent than those whose kids did not turn out well. Why should you get the promotion at work? Because you can outwork all your coworkers. Right? Do you hear this? This is, we want to live in a meritocracy. Everything that I have, I earned. It's because I did it. I pulled myself up. I'm better, smarter, better looking than everybody else who didn't. So who gets the praise? We want to live in a meritocracy. And I would say most Christians still live and act like they live in a meritocracy. This is the kingdom of self. It's a meritocracy. So if someone says that we're failing, even Jesus, if Jesus were to show up to us and say, nope, you're a dog, actually. You're an outsider. You're not worthy. You don't have the merit or the ability to do something, to be with me and be in my kingdom. It destabilizes our entire kingdom. It puts everything else we believe in jeopardy because our entire worldview is based on good things happen to good people. And if you're a good person, good things will happen to you. And of course, I am one of the good guys. It's a key piece to this meritocracy. So if a person, even Jesus, were to say to us, you're actually an outsider, you're actually a dog, You're not one of the good guys. You have failed. When someone says that to us, it triggers this little inner lawyer who stands up inside of us and starts defending our case. We hear the charge. He or she is a dog. They're sinner. They're unclean. They're unworthy to be here. And our internal defense attorney stands up and says, I object. I object. Here is exhibit A on why I am not said dog. Right? I went to the best schools. I have friends of all sorts of different races and all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Clearly, I'm not the greedy person that you think I am. I even throw some dollars out the window to the guys that stand on the, on the, on the on-ramps of 74. Clearly, I'm not greedy like you think I am. I could not be a dog. Now, I think we all, or most of us, live in this land we think 
is a meritocracy, this kingdom of self that, we've, that I've named this morning, a meritocracy. That's one reason why we have this inner lawyer that stands up. We, we can't be guilty. We, we don't want to be guilty. We don't want people to know that we're not, we don't have it all together. But secondly, and this is sandwiched here for a reason, secondly, the, the primary reason is because we don't believe what Jesus said in verses 14 through 23. We don't really believe that the well is poisoned. We don't really believe that out of a wicked heart, a depraved heart, flow all of our sinful natures, all of our, all of our sinful deeds. We don't think that we're actually bent on the inside, that we're damaged goods on the inside. We don't believe that our hearts, the control center of the human being, is actually our greatest problem. Now, what's fascinating here is that Mark is sandwiching this story. He's got this sandwich technique where he says, he introduces the the Pharisee and the scribes, the really religious person. Then he teaches on the wickedness of the heart, the depravity of the heart, that that every single human being has a depraved heart and out of their heart flow all their bad deeds. And then the other side of the sandwich is the Syrophoenician woman. Okay, so this is a... Sandwich technique, he's he's meaning to teach us something. He introduces a really moralistic religious guy that is clearly living in a meritocracy. He thinks he's a good guy, but Jesus kind of blows up this guy's worldview when he tells him that there are no good guys. Everybody wears a black hat in God's kingdom because everyone has a defiled heart. Everyone is broken on the inside. Therefore, you can't really live in a meritocracy. You want it, but you can never experience the joy. You can never experience the true happiness. You can never experience the true acceptance in a meritocracy because you, of all people, should be aware of your own sin. This thing that came, you know, with, with, with Bruce Jenner and Caitlyn Jenner that came out. Christians of all people should be aware of the confusion and the struggle that he's going through. He's not happy in his own skin. He has something inside that is wrong, that is disordered. And he believes that if he changes things on the outside, it will make his heart feel more settled, more happy, more full. Just so happened on, uh, my wife was watching a show this last week, uh, and or a week a half ago, and a, a person had the, the sex change sur- surgery at like 18 or 19, lived 10, was a man, I think, lived as a woman for the next 10 years, and now 10 years later realized, well, that was a mistake. I, I thought I was a man, I was born a male, but I think I was a female. I lived 10 years as a female, but now, you know what, actually, I want surgery so I could be a male today, and if I wake up tomorrow and feel like a woman, I want to be a woman tomorrow. She was, he was completely confused and wanted, if she felt like being a man today, he wanted to be a man. If he felt like being a woman tomorrow, he wanted to be a woman. Why? Because on a long enough time scale, okay, on a long enough trajectory, everyone is unhappy. Nothing will satisfy us. Nothing. Christians should know that. And we shouldn't be condemning of it. We have the prescription. We have What's wrong with us? Why we feel this way, right? We said a few weeks ago, God says, have one woman for your wife. We want 10. God says, have 10. We'd want 11, right? That there's something wrong with us on the inside. Jesus says, it's our heart. It's depraved. It's fallen from sin. Now, if you live... If your world is a meritocracy, if your world is, if you do this for God, God does this for you, what happens when things go wrong? Take this. If you have a rebellious teenager, if you have a rebellious teenager and you're living in a meritocracy, you think, I do this for God and God will make sure my kids turn out okay. So if your teen is going crazy, you've really only got two options in a meritocracy. Number one, God is punishing you. Because you didn't do it well. You weren't a good parent. You made mistakes. You were a sinner. You didn't teach them the gospel. You didn't keep them in church, whatever that thing could be. So you've got one, God's punishing me 
because I didn't do a good job. Or two, God has failed you. How could he? I did this. I woke up every Sunday and brought my kid to church. I bought that, per- that kid every Bible. I stacked them high on their bedside table. I did everything I know to do for my kid. And now look, she's out rebelling. She's running the streets. How dare God? God has failed me. See, that's what happens when failure hits your life in a meritocracy. But Mark here is sandwiching this story so that we can see the way out, that there's a different way to live. There's a different kingdom, a kingdom outside the kingdom of meritocracy. And it's surprisingly surprising that the religious here, the one, the insider who, who has the fast track to Jesus, who, who's right there face-to-face with Jesus, can ask Jesus all kind of questions without anybody kind of going, because <gasps> he's religious and he's got his, he's got his moralistic do-gooder. Uh, the, word, word, the word has missed me right now. Uh, uh, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll go on. He's got this list of qualifications. He has his resume. There it is. He has his resume that says, look how good of a person I am. He can entertain Jesus no, right face-to-face without any, any, any gossip going on, any confusion. But, but what's interesting in this text, the religious person doesn't get it. People who live in a meritocracy don't get it. But the outsider who ignores the inner lawyer when Jesus calls her a dog. And he thro- she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. She gets it, and her wildest dreams come true. And that's what it's going to take for some of us, for all of us. If you want to meet the real Jesus, if you want to experience a new life, this new life and this new kingdom that he offers us, we've got to learn to ignore the inner lawyer and say, okay, all right, okay. Maybe I am a dog. Maybe I am an outsider. Maybe I am so sinful, more sinful than I'm even aware of. I am unworthy. I am not fit for a relationship with the holy God of the Bible. I can't live in a meritocracy because I'm a sinner and I fall short constantly. Jesus shows us here when we can do that, when we can admit the depravity of our own nature, a whole new world will open up. A kingdom of mercy, a graceocracy. Where sinners get blessings they don't deserve because Jesus took the punishment that he didn't deserve. It's the irony of the kingdom. It's not a meritocracy. It's a graceocracy. Look back at our text. Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So he's literally saying, It's not right for me to heal your daughter because you're a dog. You're an outsider to Israel. But she answered him. Man, I like a quick-witted woman like this. Right there. Bam, bam, Jesus Jesus throws the punch. It's not fit for dogs. She goes, boom. But dogs get this. Well, let's just read what she says. Yes, Lord. So he's, yeah, you're right. You were sent to Israel. I recognize the priority of your mission. I recognize that you're sent first to Israel. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. We all know this, Right? This is the only reason to have a dog if you have children. (laughs) This is the only reason. They just hoover along the floor, right? Clean everything up. That's one less job I have to do, right? This woman, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says something that could be terribly offensive to her and she flips it and sees herself inside, says, yes, you're right, I am a dog, I am unworthy, I am a Gentile, there's no reason you should answer my prayer, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the children's table. It's interesting too because when Jesus, if you you read this in Greek, when Jesus says, uh, children, he uses this word called technon, and it means literally offspring. It means 
children in the technical sense, and Jesus uses it twice. But when she responds, she uses the word paid on, which includes everyone in the household. So there's these little details that are showing that she really gets it. Yeah, you know what? I'm not a child by birth. I'm not in Abraham's lineage. I'm an outsider, but I'm like, I'm like an adopted child. I'm someone that's been brought in. I'm inside the house. You're here with me. I'm in your presence. And you know what? I'll be a dog. If I can get a crumb, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, you're a dog. Woman says, yeah, you're right. But dogs are part of the family too. And dogs get fed too. And dogs eat off the master's table too. And Jesus loves it. In Matthew, he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Right here in Mark, he says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying and in bed and the demon gone. See, this is one of the signs that the Holy Spirit has settled into your heart. That he gives you a right view of yourself. He lets you see the dark corners of your heart and makes you aware that it's true. You are a sinner. You are selfish. You are greedy. You are immoral. That there are these things lurking in your heart and you can admit to yourself, to God, and to the world, I'm a dog. I'm an outsider. I don't deserve to be in the good graces of God. King David said in Psalm 22, I'm a worm, not a man. Now, don't we just, oh, these people really needed to go on Oprah. They really needed some more self-esteem. This is a serious self-esteem issue. We've got preachers in our nation right now that say, don't tell people they're sinners. They They don't need to know they're sinners. Joel Osteen being one of them. People already know they're sinners. Just tell them how loved they are. Well, Take that, Jesus, right? It's not Jesus' way of dealing with people. It's not Paul's way of dealing with people. I'm a worm and no man. By the way, most people don't, I mean, we're fading out of that. You probably haven't heard too much self-esteem talk as of late in our news. Why is that? Well, we've done tests. We've done tests. We've realized, uh, do you know who has the highest self-esteem in our society? Those in prison. Highest self-esteem. Why? I didn't do it. I'm right. I'm good. I'm a good person. That was his fault. That was their fault. That was their... They, have, they have too big of a self-esteem. See? But they jumped on that bandwagon in the 80s and in the 90s. Got to puff our kids up. Got to build them up. Teach them that they can rule the world. Right? If you did that... No, never mind. I won't say that. Never mind. Well, anyways, that's the difference... That's the difference here. Listen, what's the difference between the religious person and this Syrophoenician outside Gentile woman? What's the difference? One lives in a meritocracy and can never admit that they're not good enough. One can never admit that they don't have an inside track to Jesus because they're moral, because they read their Bible, because they pray, because they don't sin in this way or that way or the other way. And the other one, Syrophoenician woman, she knows she's an outsider. She gets it. I don't dress like them. I don't act like them. I don't talk like them. I don't worship like them. So she just throws herself at his feet, throws herself on the mercy of Christ, and she gets grace. She knows she could never earn, she could never merit her way into a relationship with Christ. She could never earn a spot at God's table. Right? The Jews were God's special people. They had the law. They had the Old Testament. They were familiar with all these signs that were pointing to Jesus. And yet when Jesus arrived, none of them or very few of them recognized him. He came to his people and his people rejected him. His people did not receive him. But this woman, this Gentile, this outsider, had none of these things. And yet she received faith from the Holy Spirit and she placed her faith in Jesus in the spot, in the moment. And she got what her heart was looking for. This challenges me. What type of people do you think respond positively to Jesus? 
Don't you have this meritocracy in your head? I, I think I could share my faith with this person because I think he might be, he's a pretty good person. I think he might be, he's probably pretty close to Jesus. It's probably a little easier to talk to this guy about my faith. And this person who's just out there, oh, hard case, hard case. Just pray for that one. Right? Don't we have this in our head? This story should give us great confidence in sharing our faith and sharing the gospel with anyone who will listen and inviting other people to missional community. This woman is the least likely person to get it. She's the least likely person to get the gospel, to get a relationship with Jesus, but she's the first person in the gospel of Mark to get it. You go through all the, all the characters, all the disciples, and you're thinking, Peter, this guy, he's, he's on it. Peter's got to get it. She gets it before Peter gets it. Peter will get it in a few chapters, and then he'll forget it again. Now, it's really hard for us, I think, especially in our, t- our society today. This, I think we are in a meritocracy. We live in this meritocracy. And the most simple and freeing thing you can do is the most terrifying. Admit it. This woman, she says, everything you think about me, everything you're saying about me, okay, I'm a dog. I'm an outsider. I'm a Gentile. I'm a pagan. I worship other gods. Yeah, all right. Is there any grace for me? And what does Jesus say? It's a, this is miraculous what happens here. See, she confesses she's a dog and she gets adopted as a child. She gets treated as a child. That's the irony of the kingdom. You admit your darkness, you admit your wickedness, you admit your brokenness and Christ heals you and Christ delivers you and Christ saves you. Why are we fighting to live in a meritocracy? Why are we trying to prove to others that we're better than they think we are? We're resisting grace. Keep it away from me. Keep it away from me. See, in this 1 Samuel 16, when God goes to choose David and sends Samuel to go find David, and, and, and Samuel goes through all the guys, right? Ooh. Firstborn stands up, he's swole, he's like, that's the king, there he is, look at that guy. God says, nope, down the line he goes, do, 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 do. Do you have any more, he gets the, all the sons, do you get any, you have any more sons? Well, I got one, he's, he's my youngest, and he's way out doing what youngest sons do. He's out daydreaming in the field with some sheep. I could probably give him a bath and bring him in. Do you want me to do that? He says, yeah, bring him in. And he says this, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. Now, most of us see that as really comforting. But if we pair that with what Jesus said here, it's from the heart that flow all of our wickedness and our greed and sensuality and our sexuality. We look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. That means we're not fooling anybody. And when God says we're depraved, he knows because he sees into our heart. He sees the control center of who we are. So that means, listen, Christian, When you get the gospel, when you understand what Jesus is teaching, then you understand that you are the least likely person to ever get it. You are the Syrophoenician woman. That this list that I have in my head, this person, she would never accept Jesus. She's way too far gone. You see your name at the bottom of the list. You are the least likely person to ever believe the gospel because you know what's going on in your own heart. At least you've seen a glimpse of it. This is the humility that bringing the gospel brings, that the believing the gospel brings. It's the irony of the kingdom that when you confess your badness, you can say, yeah, in my heart, I'm a dog. I'm ruthless. I'm judgmental. 
I'm unkind, I'm greedy, whatever it is, I'm unworthy to be in your family. I could never merit my way into your kingdom. When you do that and you go to Jesus and you fall at Jesus' feet, Jesus takes your place. He becomes your merit. He takes what you deserve and he gives you what he deserves. That's grace. This woman says, I'm a dog. And you know what? This, this, think about this. What do you do to a bad dog? What do you do to a sick dog? If you ever had one, you take him out, take him to a vet, you put him down. That's what you do. See, this is, if you look at this text, it should melt your heart because Jesus is calling this woman a dog but he's not treating her like a dog. He treats her like a child. Why? Because Jesus was willing to be treated like a dog so that we could become children. Jesus was led outside the city and he was put down so that we could be raised up. Jesus was killed so that we could have new life. He became a cursed dog so that we could be blessed children. But the irony of the kingdom is that no one becomes a child until they've confessed their doggedness. It's the irony. Can we see that? Can we admit that? Can we take that in? Where do we see, do we, how do we see ourselves? I think there's probably two types of people in this room, primarily. There's those who are more like the religious outsider, and we're acting, and there's those that are like the Syrophoenician woman, and you're not acting. You might be chasing all kinds of different things, trying to fill this hole, or trying to find security, or trying to find who you are. And there's probably a mixture of the two. That we want to live in a meritocracy, but we know that we can't. We're never smart enough. We're never good enough. We're never able to keep it up. And the promise of the gospel this morning is that anyone who can lay their self-justification down, their self-justifying work down at Jesus' feet, anyone who can ignore the inner lawyer and come to Jesus as an unworthy sinner this morning gets surprised by the grace of God. Dogs get adopted into the family. Those who try to earn their way, they don't. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we all fail to live. And then, in the surprise of grace, he took the wrath of God for us. He took the punishment for us. He paid the price for us. And when we place our faith in him, because he was resurrected to the right hand of the Father, he gives us his merit. So now we, Scripture says that we can stand inside the righteousness of God. So when someone says, you're a dog, we can say, yes, I am, but I've been made righteous in Christ. I've been forgiven. I've been given grace. God hears my prayer because of the righteousness of Christ, not because I'm good enough. It's the surprise of grace. Now this morning, as we get ready to come to the table, this is why we come to the table every morning or every Sunday. We come for grace. We all, every one of us in this room have went our own way this week. Every one of us have sinned. None of us are worthy of God's table. None of us are. We've all walked away from him, but because of his grace, he invites us back each week after week after week. Come and take and eat. This is my body that's been broken for you. This is my blood that has been shed for you. I, want, I pray this morning that God would do something supernatural with the power of the Holy Spirit and you would come this morning like the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus. What are we getting? We're getting broken bread. We're getting crumbs off the table. We're getting Jesus in our hands. And what are the requirements? <laughs> that we see ourselves as in need of this grace. We come to him for this grace. And if you're in this room and, you've never, and you're, you're believing maybe for the first time and you've never been baptized, we want to we baptize you. Bapti baptism is a, is a sign of the covenant of God that God will, has washed away all of our sins. That though our sins are like scarlet, he washes us as white as snow through the work of Christ on the cross. 
So if you've never been baptized, we want to baptize you here. And after you've been baptized, we invite you every single week, week after week, come feast on the table. Come to the table of Christ. Let me pray. Most merciful God, In our darkest moments, I think we, we believe your word here. We believe that there's something inherently wrong with us. Some of us still fight to believe it. We think it's maybe just the repercussions of growing up in a religious environment. It's the repercussions of conservatism. It's repercussions of Christendom. It's hangover. If we just free ourselves from the rules, we just free ourselves from your way and the law and the standard that we'll finally just accept ourselves and be happy, but that's its own slavery. Father, would you convince us this morning that there's no running from ourselves, there's no running from our heart, there's no getting away from the fact that even the standards that we make ourself, we break. And the only way to be free is to say, yeah, I'm an outsider. There's no hope for me except the grace of Jesus. I'm a dog, and I deserve to be treated like one. But Jesus doesn't treat us like a dog. He treats us like sons and daughters of the king, and he gives us grace. And not just grace, grace that saves, absolutely, but grace that sanctifies, grace that changes us. As Paul says to the letter of the Ephesians, grace that seats us with Christ in the heavenly places, that one day Christ will come back and renew all this earth and renew us and give us new physical bodies and there'll be no more sinful heart, there'll be no more depravity, there'll be no more confusion in us. We'll be perfectly happy and complete worshiping the God of our creator and living life on this new created earth. Father, we long for that day. As we come to this table, I pray that you would grant us repentance. As we come to the table, we would take and eat, being reminded of the great grace of God given to us in Jesus. Thank you for your son. Jesus, thank you for your work. Spirit, thank you for your work. Christ's powerful name, I pray. Amen.